welcome to the Nurse and Midwife Support Podcast, Your Health Matters. I'm Celeste Pinney, your podcast host. I'm the Stakeholder Engagement Coordinator with Nurse and Midwife Support, and I'm a registered midwife. Nurse and Midwife Support is the national support service for nurses, midwives, and students. Our service is anonymous, confidential, and free, and you can call us anytime you need support on 1-800-667-877 or contact us via our website at nmsupport.org.au. I'd like to begin today by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which each of us meet and pay my respect to First Nations elders past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. Today's podcast is about the important and sensitive subject of burnout. The last few years have brought unparalleled rates of stress in the nursing and midwifery profession. Although we are no longer in the grips of the pandemic and lockdowns have ended, we are still hearing that nurses and midwives are feeling fatigued, overwhelmed, anxious and depressed. There seems to be a sharp focus on the topic of burnout at the moment, which is a good thing in that it can help to bring more awareness to this condition that we hear nurses and midwives are experiencing. A number of studies over the years have shown that burnout has always been a problem for nurses and midwives. And a more recent study by La Trobe University found that Around 75% of midwives are experiencing burnout, which is quite a high rate. So in that regard, it's vitally important that we provide information and support to people to help support their well-being. And we talk about ways in which people can implement positive coping strategies to help nurses and midwives avoid burnout and other chronic health conditions. And so to do that, today we have an exciting guest on our podcast, Cherie Johnson, joining us to talk about the very important topic of burnout. Cherie has practiced as a psychologist for the last 30 years and is an executive coach, author, and meditation teacher. She's the founder of Coaching for Doctors, Australia's first coaching practice dedicated solely to doctor development, and in 2021 published her international best-selling book, The Thriving Doctor, How to Be More Balanced and Fulfilled, Working as a Doctor. Cherie has spent the last eight years deep in conversation with doctors individually and in groups seeking to understand their experience of work and their goals for their own futures and the future of the health system. Cherie has also developed a wellbeing program for health professionals, including nurses and midwives named Respond, which we'll put some information about that in the show notes. So welcome today, Cherie. Thank you so much, Celeste. It's really a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yes, absolutely. Me too. And thanks so much for being here today. We really look forward to hearing about your experience working with health professionals and burnout. And we'd love to hear your insight and wisdom about some practical ways that people can help prevent and manage burnout. So we'd love to hear a little bit about the work that you do. Would you please share that with us? Of course, yes. So as you said, I'm a psychologist and I'm an executive coach founder of our coaching practice, Coaching for Doctors. So I've been working as a psychologist for about three decades. I worked initially in welfare with families and individuals. Then I had my own counselling practice for a number of years. So I have pretty deep, long experience in grief, trauma, relationships, anxiety, depression, those kinds of things. But I always had an interest in work and the impact of work on people. And then for those who've read my book, you'll know that my husband died in 2011 of cancer after a four-year journey. And during that time, I was really struck, I guess, being on the other side of healthcare, which often happens to us as health professionals. We get some new insights when we either patients ourselves or with somebody close to us who's a patient. I was really struck by the variation that we met in the healthcare professionals, not just doctors, but all healthcare professionals, complementary and mainstream Western carers. 
And I was very struck by the impact that had on us as patients in terms of whether the doctor or the nurse or the psychologist or the physio, whoever it was, whether they were engaged and present with us or whether they were distracted and in a hurry and kind of no time to answer our questions or be with us in the experience. So I just left that experience after a bit of recovery after Tim left us really left with feeling I'm a meditation teacher, a psychologist, a coach. There must be some way that I can help these healthcare professionals who clearly many of them are not okay. So I did some more particular training around being a coach. I started asking lots of healthcare professionals, particularly doctors, because at that time I saw them as the gatekeepers and the decision makers for a lot of what was happening in healthcare. And I probably still think that's true. I'm not sure that's the best model, but I think that is the model that we have at the moment. So I started asking them about what training they had around interpersonal communication, how they managed it, how they did their own emotional regulation, and really found that there were some pretty big gaps in the training. This is a huge problem for patients. We know that doctors who are well have better health outcomes and the patients have better health experiences. But it's also an issue around sustainability, around team leadership, about connection with teams. We saw a lot of nurses in our four years walking on with cancer who were propping up or supporting the doctors in many ways, that the doctor would come in and have two or three minutes with the patient, but we'd have sometimes hours, particularly during chemotherapy and those kinds of things with the nursing staff. So my early iterations into this was to try and hold a couple of conferences in 2015 and 17 where we invited all healthcare professionals and the community. We had a really great response from community. They wanted to come and do learning with healthcare professionals, but the healthcare professionals were fairly reluctant to be learning in the same room with patients. Again, there has been some shift in that since 2015, 2017, but those experiences really showed me that doctors in particular wanted to do training around what we call intra and interpersonal skills. So intra skills, how do I manage my own self, my own thinking and rumination and distress, my emotions, and interpersonal, my collaborations and communication with colleagues and patients and patient families. So we started thinking about how can we help doctors do those two things. And as you've already said, that led to us developing a program called Recalibrate, which is a deep immersion program we've been delivering for six years with doctors. Respond that we built in the first year of the pandemic because many other healthcare professionals were asking us to help in that very early stage of the pandemic where we were all so frightened about what it meant and how we were going to keep our families safe and still do our work and so on. And then the book, The Thriving Doctor, in 2021, and now in 2023, really trying to develop a lot of other coaches to be able to work with healthcare professionals. So A lot of the processes and the practices that we would use in coaching in a corporate space apply. The the way we're doing coaching in large part is very similar, but there are very specific differences in healthcare that perhaps don't exist in other industries that we really want to see some specific development in the coaching community so that they're better equipped and better able to help healthcare professionals do their work in what is inherently a fairly difficult system and sometimes we might even say a fairly dysfunctional system. Mm, Wow, thanks so much for sharing that story and such important work that you're doing there and really interesting that it was born out of your own my very, you know, imagine personal and intimate experience with your husband and seeing how he was impacted by the health of health professionals and how that translates into patient care. So yeah, really great to hear. 
it was a very clear reality that when a health professional was with us who wasn't present, who couldn't really engage with us effectively, that we would spend a lot of time and energy then kind of debriefing from that and talking about that and expressing our frustration and wondering how we were going to get hold of them again to talk some more kind of thing. And when when the health professional was well and engaged and present and had time and space for us, that might have still only been five minutes, but there was a different feeling in the room. We didn't spend any time on that. We could just get on with the healing work and the family connection work that was so important at that time for us. Mm. And I think that really translates over into the work that nurses and midwives do and nurses and midwives really want to be able to give that really good quality patient care, but sometimes are unable to because they're challenged with their workload and some may be experiencing burnout. So you touched on the book that you've written. Could you tell us a little bit more about that book and why you've written a book and how you've hoped that the book would help doctors? I think I wrote the book really because we were in pandemic and locked down, Celeste, in large part, (laughs) was how can I still make use of this time? But it was also very much about reach. I've coached hundreds of doctors now in small groups and individually, and there are lots of strategies that we're using over and over and over again. They're kind of tried and tested now. So whilst coaching one-on-one is a very individually contextualized process, and that's, I think, why it is so powerful, there are still these consistent themes. And after working with enough people, I guess they were very evident to me. And it just felt like a way to share the reality is as coach, I can only ever in my life see a certain number of doctors or people, whoever happens to be my clients. And so writing the book just gave a bit more reach and helped people have access to some of those strategies. There are many doctors in their mid and late career who have asked me if I could share some of the things that I've learned with the junior doctors and have expressed a wish that they would have known some of these things earlier in their career. And we've tried a number of times to create something for the junior doctors, but the reality is they're so time poor that it's very difficult for them to come in an ongoing way to any program that we offer. So the book, again, was another way of helping them in a sort of self-paced learning way to tap into some of what we were learning and sharing. And in an amazing turn of events, we've had contact now from doctors in many, many countries, and the book is currently being translated into Korean for Korean doctors by a group of Korean doctors and dentists in one of the universities there who said that the book really resonated with them. So when you put something like that into the world, like a book, you don't really know what will happen to it, but it's been very surprising and humbling for me to see how much these tools and skills and strategies really have resonated in many, many places that I couldn't have imagined. So I think, yes, there is a lot in the book that's relevant to nurses and midwives. Of course, the stories are all about doctors because that's where I live in the world of doctors. But the skills and the strategies, the tools, the mindful presence, the ability to improve your emotional vocab, all those kinds of things are relevant really to all adults and certainly to healthcare professionals. Yeah, absolutely. And we'd love to, as the conversation goes on, hear a little bit more about some of the content of the book and the strategies that you found to be really useful and achievable for people who might be experiencing burnout or who want to prevent burnout from happening to them. We do hear at Nurse and Midwife Support that a lot of nurses, midwives, and even our students are experiencing burnout. Could you maybe just talk a little bit about what advice you might have for listeners who are experiencing burnout? The very first and most important thing that everybody needs to hear is that burnout is not a mental illness. It's not something wrong with the individual. 
it's a mismatch or a relationship difficulty, if you like, between the individual and their workplace. The definition we mostly use about burnout is that it's around workplace poorly managed. So Christina Maslach and her colleague Michael Lita are the lead researchers in the burnout space. They have a new book out in 2022 called The Burnout Challenge, which I encourage people to look at, particularly if you have a leadership role, you have any capacity to change the workplace conditions, please have a look at that book. And they've identified six workplace conditions that need to be considered around burnout, which is sustainable workload, enough choice and control, or what we might call autonomy, enough recognition and reward, feeling that someone's grateful or recognised that you're there doing the work you're doing, having a supportive work community, so feeling connected to some of the other people at work. And the Gallup organisation has found that having a best friend at work is really significant in terms of people's well-being. A sense of fairness that what's happening for you is also happening for others. So we could think about the gender pay gap, for instance, as as one of the issues that is burnout risk in organisations. And a sense of meaningful work or feeling that your work is aligned with your values. So when we're thinking about burnout, we do want to think about individual responsibility. It is about how you cope and how you ask for what you need and how you develop support networks around yourself. So we often talk in the work we do about having an internal scaffold and an external scaffold, both of which help hold you up, if you like. But we need to think about those individual skills of asking for help regulating ourselves, being able to manage our mind effectively, having enough sleep, all of these things. But even if we do all of those things beautifully, if the workplace is toxic or dysfunctional, then it won't matter how skilled we are as individuals, the workplace is still problematic. So we need to use a both and lens when we're talking about burnout. We want to talk about the individual, their experience. So a burned out individual will feel exhausted, and they'll be doing a lot of depersonalizing, like it's the same old so-and-so, different day, and will have lost their sense of agency, their sense of efficacy. So that's how we know a person's burnt out. But we don't want to only put our investment into that person's well-being or that person's skill. We need also to look at the job design, the workplace at the same time, both of those things. Mm. Yeah, that's so important, I think, because sometimes there can might be a tendency to think that it's all about the workplace or I can't do anything to change this. And I think a lot of people have that feeling of not being in control because they can't change staff deficits or workloads or those sorts of external stresses that come in. And I definitely think this is a great conversation and we hope that there'll be some management or people in more senior positions listening so that they might be able to start to make implement some of these changes. But In terms of some of the things you listed, the symptoms of burnout, like depersonalization or lack of autonomy, would you say that they are some of the more early signs of burnout? Because I know that burnout can exist on a sort of a continuum. And I'm just curious to know what your experience is. I guess I want to help people sort of start to identify when they're early stages of burnout so that they can be proactive to try to intervene as much as possible so that it doesn't get worse. So some people will be aware of the acronym HALTS, and I always have an extended version of HALTS. So hungry, angry, lonely, late, tired, stressed, or sick. All of these things will help a person feel depleted. The very first thing I would say is if you are depleted in any of those ways, pay attention to them, attend to them. A healthcare, and you mentioned the workforce shortage, I mean, healthcare does not help in terms of the big unwieldy system. If you are a nurse on a ward that usually needs to have 
three or four nurses on shift and you're the only one there, well, it's all very nice for the psychologist to say, go and get a drink of water, isn't it? It's not so Mm. easy to pull off. But I think in terms of always ask the people I'm working with, do you want to enable this system or disable or disrupt the system? And we do need to take some personal responsibility about what we're doing to enable or disable our circumstance. So in the first instance, looking at these halts, am I hungry? Am I late, tired, stressed? How can I attend to any of those things? Even the very smallest thing of taking yourself to the bathroom or having a bottle of water with you that you can take regular sips, which of course is very difficult with the PPE situation we've had in recent years. Mm. I'll share some other skills and techniques later on. But to answer your question about early signs, halts can be a very passing temporary state. I'm hungry, I have something to eat, I'm okay again, and I can get back to work and focus and concentrate. When we're thinking about burnout, we're thinking about more pervasive kind of things. So for instance, the kind of exhaustion that tells you I really need a holiday, I really need a break, I need to take a few shifts off. And I do that, I have a week or a couple of weeks off and I come back and within the first, maybe even the first couple of hours or the first day, I feel like exactly how I felt before I went on holidays. It hasn't really been appeased. It wasn't just that I needed a few nights good sleep. There was something else going on. So that's one way if you take a break and you come back and you think I'm really still no better than I was. I think disconnection is a really powerful alerter, if I can call it that. So when we withdraw, when we don't want to engage in any of our usual things that would bring us joy, when we notice we're tuning out, we're not really present, or if somebody else says to us, I don't think you were really listening in the meeting this morning, or you seemed a bit distracted in the huddle, you haven't actually seemed yourself all week, that we actually make room to hear that message because we can't see ourselves very well often. We're not really taught how to be self-aware or how to listen other than sometimes in the most superficial kind of ways. So giving permission or allowing at least inside ourselves to say if somebody, a person that we trust, a family member or a colleague that we are friends with, that we have worked a long time with, if they make a comment like that, that we make a commitment to ourselves to hear it and to be curious about that, to not just straight away say, no, no, I'm fine. Or even if we do say on the outside, no, no, I'm fine, all good, that we inside make a note to check that, to go for a walk the dog after work or to have a bath or to go to bed early and to just ask ourselves, that was really interesting that they said that to me today. How am I really? I think we avoid that. We tend to brush stuff like that off, avoid it, keep going, keep busy. And it's a disservice to ourselves to not pause and notice that. Another thing that happens when we disconnect is we tend to other people. So we become very Well, we depersonalize them. We talk about, oh, that's just another patient, just another day, or we refer to the diabetic in bed six. We revert to some of that, what we might call kind of old medical language, where we're minimizing or discounting the other person's experience as a protective mechanism, as an armor for ourselves. And then Christina Maslach's research more recently says that if we're cynical or hostile, that that's a really good indicator. If more cynical in our view of what we can do or what others can do or whether any change is possible, then that's a red flag for how we're going. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's really great to talk about it because, like you said, it's important to have self-awareness, but we're not taught that. That's not necessarily part of our education. And so it's about how can we come into ourselves a little bit more and look at some of these potential symptoms and then from there 
once we've identified that, we can seek help. So once someone's maybe seen some of those signs that their health might be declining and that they might be headed towards burnout, what's a good way that they can access support? Like, is it better to speak to your GP or to speak to a colleague or just to speak to anybody that you trust and then from there try to get some professional support? I think that trust is the critical element and it's some people find that really difficult to find a person to trust. So I think we probably go for the GP as the next step. But having somebody that you can trust, I mean, it's a potential identity crisis, isn't it? If you feel like I've lost the joy in my life, I don't have any energy for work, I'm trapped in this system because my family's dependent on my wage, I've done all these years of training, who am I? If I can't be a nurse or I can't be a midwife anymore, what does that actually mean for my life? Who am I? That's a really significant identity crisis for a person. It's a very vulnerable place to be. So it's not easy to say that out loud to somebody. And as adults who want to be autonomous and belong and feel safe, we have a lot of tactics to keep away from this place of having to disclose that we're not okay. There's a lot of anxiety and fear for people in saying out loud, I need some help or I don't think I'm okay. So in the ideal world, yes, somebody that we trust would be a great place to start. And I often say to the people I work with that even if that's the dog or the cat or the horse, or if there's an animal in your life who is a really good listener and won't say anything back, then it's a good place to try it out because it's not familiar to our mouth or our way of thinking to say out loud for many of us, I'm not okay. I need some help. I'm not delivering the kind of care I want to deliver. I'm really scared that I'm going to hurt somebody or whatever it might be. If there is a person, then yes, that would be much better than your favorite animal and another good place to start in terms of disclosure and practice. Many people get benefit out of writing in a journal. It's not for everybody, but that process of writing is very similar to that experience of telling somebody. It's a way of giving your experience a sensory element rather than just rumination inside your head. And I think there's questions of heart. What do I know in my heart to be true about myself, about who I want to be in the world, about how I want to serve? about how I want to be with the patients, why did I become a nurse or a midwife in the first place, these kinds of who am I questions and then questions around where should I put my energy and if you are burnt out or you feel like you're on that slide to burn out, then the best energy, and I would actually argue every single day even for a healthy well health professional, the best energy we spend is the energy we spend on ourselves. We really can only provide suboptimal care to somebody else if we are suboptimal. So when we're really well and healthy and energized and connected and present, then we might have some chance of providing optimal care. So I think, yes, telling somebody that you trust, saying it out loud, practicing in a journal or on a pet doesn't have to be a medical person that you're telling. It can be anybody. And then certainly once you've established that and you have got used to the idea that you might need a bit of help talking to your doctor, if it's earlier on in the process, then I think reinstating some of your good habits is probably a really good place to start. If you used to go to the gym and you always felt good when you were, then tell somebody that's what you're going to do. Find your gym buddy. Be public about it because you're much more likely to follow through. If you recognize that you're very sleep deprived, give yourself a month to go to bed early and have the people in your family help you 
set some external structures up that will make you start to change your behavior. Yeah, I think it's really great that you speak to that reaching out for help. When I think of that, I think about vulnerability and probably a lot of people have heard of Brene Brown and her becoming very popular in terms of talking about the importance of being able to be vulnerable. And I think it's something that Probably a lot of people struggle with, but particularly nurses and midwives, because we are trained to be strong and push through and keep going and focusing on the other. So I think it's great that you talked about some ways that people can start to practice a little bit, build that muscle around how can I start to speak about how I'm feeling and reach out for help. And that's really, really important. So that's great to hear. So we know that too much stress can detrimentally affect health and well-being and you talk in your book about finding the sweet spot for stress how can people recognize and stay within a healthy stress zone to ensure that they don't become chronically stressed and then further risk of burnout great question celeste when i find the answer i'll make a lot of money (laughs) (laughs) i think that the sweet spot of stress is really where we are at our peak performance and We know when we're at peak performance, we're in flow, we're connected to people, we smile, we feel energized, we have a full busy day at work, a big shift, lots of patients, and we feel good about it. We leave feeling like we've contributed, that we have helped people, that we have lived a values-driven life that day. So I think that most people know when they're in flow or when they're at peak performance or optimum performance, whichever words you like, it feels good. It fills us up. It helps. It doesn't matter whether we're more introverted or more extroverted. When we're doing something that requires our energy and we feel encouraged and uplifted and energized by it, then I think you've found the sweet spot. The stress curve is not a bell curve. It's got a slow, gradual move up on the left-hand side to the peak. And then it's got a sort of slow, it's a bit skewed to the right, the arousal curve. And then it's got this sort of slower downward gradient. And then we, whoops, until the peak, which is skewed a bit to the right of the graph. And then it starts slow coming down the other side when we're exhausted or not going so well. And then we fall off a cliff. Literally, we get to the panic zone and the the curve just drops almost straight down. So When we're in peak performance, we start to feel a bit exhausted or a bit, it's a bit too much or a little bit overwhelmed. That's when we're starting on the curve down. And that's the time to know about interrupting. So at that point, we can change our response. We can change our expectations. We can change the environment. We can ask for help. There actually are lots of things we can do, but it's really about having that insight. You said some beautiful phrase before about turning inward or staying with ourselves. can't remember the exact words you used. But if we can have enough insight, enough self-awareness to have a sense of this is not the same as what it was when I was in that peak experience, then we can learn to interrupt that. And so changing our response is by saying things like, okay, I think I need a break now. I need to tell somebody I'm not focusing like I was. I notice my attention's not as good. I love the kind of analogy of the checkout in the supermarket where they put the sign up and they close the register. You know, somebody else does it for them usually. Mm. The supervisor comes along, puts the sign up, and if you're there, bad luck, you've got to go in another line. Often they do open another line and encourage you to come over there and so on. But there's a system around the person that's helping them to take their break and it's saying, Here's the line, we're drawing it in the sand and you can now step away. So I think we can all help that happen by being more vocal, sharing more, telling each other. We can change our expectations so I can have a different expectation that when I go to work, 
I'm going to be exhausted when I come home or I'm not going to be exhausted or I'm going to insist that I take a toilet break and I'm going to leave the floor or I'm going to leave, go outside. I, I love telling the story of working with an emergency doctor who said she could never leave the floor on a 12-hour shift and I was quite incredulous about this <laughs> and I what about a drink? What about the toilet? And she said, no, if it's busy, she can't do any of those things. So then I started thinking about how dehydrated these doctors were in the emergency room who were treating very sick people very quickly and they were becoming completely dehydrated over the whole day. So in the course of that conversation, I said to her, could she ever go outside and stand in the sunlight for two minutes, which she duly scoffed at. <laughs> and then a month later, she came back and she said, you'll never guess what I'm doing any chance I see, like I'm on the lookout now for these spaces, these gaps, and I'm going outside and standing in the sun. She was on the ground floor of her hospital. And it was making a huge difference for her. And that small act had opened her mind to what else might be possible in terms of her day. And so I think a lot of what we do when we're stressed is we have a habitual expectation that we haven't checked for a long time. We've treated as if it's true, and it is true because it's part of what we look for as well and it's part of what we're practicing. So this opportunity to start to check our own expectations and say, what if, to be curious, to wonder, what if I did something different? What if I just paused between every patient, put my two feet on the floor and took one long exhalation that would take me 10 seconds or 15 seconds? I wonder how I would feel if I did that and I made that a habit. So this idea of the sweet spot of stress, there's work to do on both sides, if you like. There's work to do around what do I call a stressor? How do I respond to the stressor? What do I call stress? How do I experience stress? And how can I identify it when it's becoming too much so that I can pull back? What are the skills I need at that moment so that I can step out, take a rest or move back into that peak spot? Yeah, I think it's great that you talk about habits because I think people can habitually get into habits of managing stress that aren't necessarily good for them, that don't take them out of that stress response. And so I like to think of small things often, I think is sort of what you're talking about there, where it's not about I have to do an hour of meditation a day, or I have to go to the gym for an hour every day, which can feel sort of overwhelming or too much for people. But how can I just take a minute here or a minute there or five minutes of mindfulness or even five minutes of exercise so that we're still building that in and then hopefully over time we can build it up so we're gradually having more of that but that we're not just staying having our body switched into the on mode all the time so that we're chronically in a state of fight and flight i totally agree celeste absolutely and i would even say 30 seconds or one breath as i said we talk about mindfulness as a formal practice when we you know sit and meditate or we go to yoga or whatever and also as an informal practice you can actually make anything that you're doing your mindful practice you can be peeling the carrots for dinner and put your whole mind on that act of peeling the carrot. And that's your mindful practice. You can walk along the hall, focusing on every step and keeping your attention on your feet as you walk instead of all the hundreds of things that you have to do that day for the length of the hall. And that's your mindful practice. And each time we do these things, we are training our mind, our attention to be where we want it to be. We can't interrupt our habitual activities and processes if we never pay attention to them. It's exactly the same as a person who's using an ill 
advised coping strategy like drinking or smoking or taking drugs or being obsessive about food in some way or any of these coping mechanisms that do us harm in the longer, probably the short and the long term, we don't change those things until we notice them as a problem. And very often other people think they're a problem before we do. (laughs) We justify and explain and say it's not that bad and carry on because it requires less effort to keep following along a habit that is established. It does require some effort to notice it, to own it, to admit that it's not really the way we want to live and to then start replacing, unlearning that habit and replacing it with another habit. That all takes a lot of effort. And if we break it down to very tiny, small things, and many people in the world have read James Clear's book, Atomic Habits, or some people might have read BJ Fogg's book, Tiny Habits, All the research is saying that break it down to its smallest thing and do a little bit often. It's our neuroplasticity, our new pathways in our brain come from regular repetition. So, you know, if I want to get strong, and let's say I want to build strong shoulders and strong arms, two push-ups a day, even two push-ups a day, two or three times a day as I get going is much better than me the first day trying to do 10 push-ups and feeling discouraged and weak and like I'm never going to get there and sore for the next two days. (laughs) A little bit often is definitely the key. And it's the same for mindfulness, for meditation, for self-awareness. And in terms of mindfulness, so we hear a lot about mindfulness these days, and I'm just curious what you know in terms of the research around mindfulness as it relates to burnout and helping people overcome burnout. What is actually, if you know, happening in the body and the brain when we're doing mindfulness? I guess that's my first question, but I also wanted to say that I think it's great that you said people can do mindfulness at any time because I think a lot of people are busy and they think, well, I just don't have the time to set aside for 10 minutes of mindfulness. And so then they don't do it at all. They just completely put it into the too hard basket. So, But it's really good to know that you can just do it as you're going about your day. I really like that concept. Totally. I think there's lots of ways people can start. If you're sitting down to dinner, can you make the first really mindful where you taste and smell and appreciate and chew slowly and then just eat your meal how you always usually do? But do that first mouthful every time. Or if you're setting off in your car, don't put the radio on and don't talk, think about what time you need to arrive and how much traffic and whatever. Just feel the seat, feel the steering wheel, feel the pedals, be fully present in the car until you reach the first red light, for instance, or the first corner. So we can practice mindfulness really in anything that we're doing. Please don't close your eyes and try and do mindful meditation while you're driving or (laughs) heavy machinery. But you can make the patient or colleague in a meeting be the centre of your mindful practice. Set yourself the challenge that for the first patient of the day, I want to be truly present. I want to feel what it feels like to not think about anything else except what the patient is saying to me. Just be completely in that moment for the first patient of the day. And when I'm hooking up the drip or when I'm checking their vitals or whatever it is, I'm fully engaged and fully present in that experience. And all I would say to people is try it out a few times, run your own experiment and see what happens. And don't fall for that critical mind that will say very readily, I'm not very good at this. This is stupid. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. Ignore all that and choose anyway. And mindfulness is about choice. It's about choosing where you put your attention, choosing what you're aware of. So try it out, run an experiment a few times, whether it's the car example or walking up the hall or being present to the patient. And just try and notice what happens to your energy. Do you feel different in some way? And it's not so much a head exercise (laughs) as a what's happening in my body. 
Do you feel more connected to the patient? Do you feel like as you walked along the hall, you were able to slow down your breathing a little bit or slow down your heart rate? One of the very powerful pieces of research for mindfulness shows that the mindful practice can help people's heart rate variability, one of our measures for well-being. So we know that when we breathe in, our heart rate speeds up a little bit. When we breathe out, our heart rate slows down a little bit. So can we extend those exhalations more often during the day? Can we have a long exhalation every time we go to sit on the toilet or every time we close a door or open a door? Can we take one long, slow exhalation? Nobody even has to know you're doing it. But every time you do it, you're inviting your parasympathetic nervous system back into balance or a little bit more like balance with your sympathetic nervous system. And the more you do it, the more front of mind it is and the more awake and aware and alert you become. Uh, One bit of, I guess, a caveat or a little warning is that if you've never done anything like this before, it can feel very uncomfortable at the beginning, just like every other skill that you've learned as a novice. When you were first putting in a cannula, you probably felt really self-conscious and unsure and uneasy and a whole lot of different feelings and thoughts went through your mind. And it's exactly the same when you're learning to bring your physiological system back into balance in the ways that I'm talking about. If you're a novice, there's lots of thoughts and feelings that might happen and lots of things that might make you feel a bit nervous or a bit like it's not worth the effort. But just as you can learn all the nursing skills that you have, you can learn these skills too with a bit of practice. Yeah, that's really good for people to know that about mindfulness, as I think not everyone knows those details. So it's great to hear your experience of that and some of the research around that. And I'm curious to know, mindfulness is a big piece in terms of helping people keep healthy and well and prevent burnout and sort of activate the parasympathetic nervous system and unhook from maybe some unhealthy coping strategies. Do you think these sorts of practices help for people who might have some like maybe more prolonged or chronic unhealthy coping strategies like addictions? We know that nurses and midwives have become having more problems with alcohol as a result of stresses placed upon them through the pandemic. So do these sorts of practices help with people who might have some of those more addictions as a result of burnout? Yes, the research is really good for people that want to look at an app that is related to mindfulness and comes out of the addiction work. You could look at Judd Brewer's app. I can't think just right now what it's called, but his name is Judd, J-U-D, Brewer. The thing I would say is that if you have an addiction or if you're worried that you might have an addiction, please get some professional help. It's a really hard set of habits for most people to unlearn or break or reestablish away from that habit of some sort of substance use by yourself. So I do want to encourage people to get some professional help take that first step of saying can you help me with someone you trust or with a professional ring lifeline if that's the most useful place to start really love telling health professionals about lifeline because i think we mostly think it's for the other people because we work shift work and we do are exposed to a lot of grief and trauma it's inherent in the work that we do lifeline is just such a good resource because it's there all of the time in the middle of the night on the weekend after shift so please remember that service for you as well. Um, But yes, certainly the mindfulness skills can help people with those kinds of conditions. It's sometimes more difficult at the beginning because it's very hard to turn inward and listen to your own mind that might then take the opportunity to ramp up and tell you how it knows what will help you and you're trying to move away from that habit. So yes, get some professional Mm -hmm. help, start small, 
be self-compassionate. Another thing, another skill that we spend a lot of time talking to health professionals about that we're excellent at looking at the other people, caring for the other people, bringing compassion to the bedside. But oftentimes uh, health professionals will say to me, oh, yes, I've got plenty of compassion at work. I'm fine at work. I've got none left when I get home for my family. And that feels wrong. That feels bad. That can bring people into the territory of moral injury because they feel like they've given all of their good stuff to the other people and haven't left anything for the people they actually love. So a little bit of self-compassion, essentially that means be mindful, be aware of what's happening, what you're doing internally. Recognize that you are human, just like all the other people, that you have a common set of experiences emotionally in that regard. And be kind, bring the kindness to yourself that you would bring to anybody else. Bring the kindness that you would bring to your best friend or your child to yourself. So self-compassion is alongside mindfulness sounds like it's another really important way that people, and I think that's the kind of self-compassion does take some practice, but people can begin bringing that into their lives, especially I think if there's some really unhealthy coping strategies like addictions where there's a lot of shame around addiction and it can be difficult because of that shame for people to reach out. So it sounds like mindfulness and self-compassion can help to open the door a little bit to people being able to speak about how they feel and, and seek some further help. It's important word that you've said there, Celeste, in terms of shame. There's so much shame in medicine. I don't know if it's more or less in nursing and midwifery to doctors, but, you know, this culture of holding it together, being strong, that's imperative that we care for the other people so we have to look like we've got it together. Actually, many, many patients will describe a very different experience to that, that, that they felt at, held at arm's length. And we were taught that not so long ago to keep patients at arm's length, psychologists too. So I think that patients report actually that when the doctor looked them in the eye or the nurse held their hand or somebody sat down in the chair and stayed with them for a few minutes, that that's in some ways the best therapy or the best healing that they had in the healthcare system. So yeah, I think that compassion is undervalued. And if we ask that question of what matters most of ourselves, very few of us are going to say it matters most that I kept myself together and strong and separate from the other people. You know? mm. Yeah, it's about connection, isn't it? And connecting with your patients and connecting with other people, which sounds like it can be hard when you're in burnout. And that sort of brings me, I guess, to my next question about you mentioned in your book the HERMA model, which was is a model that was created by a psychologist named Martin Seligman, and that model stands for positive emotions, engagement, relationships, meaning, and accomplishment. And my understanding is that this is a framework for happiness and well-being. And I know that there is a bit of a spectrum in terms of well-being with burnt out on one end and flourishing on the other. And you've touched on some of the things that people might be able to do to help move that needle towards becoming, having more thriving and flourishing in their lives. But can you tell us a little bit more about the PERMA model and why you decided to include that in your book and how that's related to burnout? Well, I think that PERMA model is, as you said, Professor Seligman, Martin Seligman's work and many, many people since him. It's the foundation of positive psychology and positive psychology is really central to coaching as well. It's that coaching is a very strengths focused process where we're looking for, you know, what's working, what's going well. And Martin Seligman was the first psychologist to say, I don't want to do all this work in pathology. I know that we're all concerned about what's going wrong for humans and we want to understand depression and anxiety and so on. But I'm really curious to know what the well people are doing. What's happening for the people that don't have mental illness? What are they doing? Can we find out more about that and have more of that? And essentially, positive psychology has concluded that the, these 
things that are part of the PERMA model, which I will talk a bit more to in a minute. People who are well have all of those going on in their life. They don't have the same quantities. It's not the same recipe. Like everybody has 20% of each. People have different mixtures, if you like, but they all have these things going on in their lives. So Martin Seligman has moved away from saying that positive psychology is about happiness. It's more about well-being. In fact, he says that the work of positive psychology is to work out how people can flourish and that his definition for flourishing is that a person has positive mental health and overall well-being. So I think probably flourishing, thriving, well-being, they're all trying to get at the same thing. In terms of happiness, the longest study in the world at Harvard into happiness says that relationships are the key for happiness. We don't need lots and lots of them, but we probably do need three or four intimate relationships, people that we can trust to be really well. So or to be really happy is, is that piece of research. So PERMA is saying that positive emotions is really around how can we generate, are we good at generating positive emotions? Are we good at doing things, thinking things, feeling things, keeping our attention on things that generate joy, love, compassion, excitement, enthusiasm, contentedness, and I think it's easy to understand that we feel more well when we're generating those kinds of emotions. People who have well-being intentionally look for opportunity to create those kind of emotions. They're engaged. They have that experience that we talked earlier about of flow, being fully in the activities that they choose to be involved. They're careful about where they put their energy and then where they put their energy, they really commit to it. I remember when Tim was having his chemotherapy, a doctor saying to us, if you're going to have chemotherapy, fully embrace it. Nobody really chemotherapy, obviously. But once you make that decision, embrace it, be committed to it, have the sense of you're doing something to help yourself be well, to recover. I've spoken about relationships already. So people who are well are very well connected. They understand that the importance of being a social animal means that we need to be socially connected. And I always like to talk to health professionals about having medical connections and non-medical connections, have people outside of your work culture that you can trust as well, that you're connected to, because it can be pretty inward-looking healthcare at times. It doesn't really reference a lot of the rest of the world when we're inside that little bubble. Meaning, so belonging and serving something bigger than ourselves. And again, I think when we're burnt out, we get very narrow in our focus. It's, we're in a tunnel. It's very black and white. Our thinking becomes very rigid. We're not very creative. The opposite is true. A person who's flourishing, having a well-being, they, they have a sense of meaning in their life. They feel like what they're doing contributes and adds value to the collective. And it's much bigger than themselves. They're happy to be of service, if you like. And then accomplishment, sometimes we call accomplishment autonomy, but it's this sense of having progress in the activities we're involved in. Now, progress can be mentoring somebody else, uplifting others. It doesn't have to be that we ourselves are the centre of attention and winning all the awards, but, but it is a sense of progress in our cause or our chosen activity. And the more recent work in positive psychology has really said we need to add a H onto PERMA, which is health. And the things that come under that are the things you'd expect, sleep, nutrition, and movement, and also a sense of optimism. I think that goes well with positive emotions, this sense of being able to be optimistic about the future, even in the face of difficulties and challenges that we hold a sense of, I've got the resources or I'll be able to find the resources. I've got a sense of agency still in my life. 
Yeah, fantastic. That's such a good summary of some of those really important components of how people can create wellness in their lives. And I think a lot of people probably know about some of those things, but it's really good reminder. And it's good that we can start looking at proactively, or even if we are in burnout or heading towards burnout, what are the things that I can focus on that are really good for me rather than, I think we can dwell on that if you're anxious or depressed, it's easy to get stuck in that cyclical negative thinking about how bad things are. But what are the things that we can do to improve our health and well-being? And like you said, some of the foundational things which we talk a lot about is exercise, nutrition, sleep. I'm curious to know, um, I guess people for people who are really busy, nurses and midwives who are juggling a lot, they go to work, they might have family commitments, other maybe they're caring for elderly parents, they have other obligations. And they just feel like they just don't have the time for, say, any exercise or even sleep might kind of go on the back burner, rest. How do you work with people who are in those positions who feel like they just really can't engage in those types of helpful activities? I think you're describing the tyranny of modern life, Celeste. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> well, this is all too familiar, having been a single parent with three kids and working full time and so on. Yeah. I think it's a bit back to what we were talking about before, which is start small and do whatever you can do. And we can bring a lot of what we can do to our existing activities. In large part, it is about mindset and the lens that we want to put up. If you're looking at the world in the dark with a torch, you can only see what's in that torch light, in that beam. And when we're in burnout, we have that very narrow view. That's all we can see, that life is hard. What's the point? I can't make any difference anyway. Nobody cares about me. I'm taken for granted, all of that stuff. When we put all the lights on, of course, we can see much more. We can see many more opportunities. We can see different kind of work. We can see other values. We can see our family is important to us. But while we're looking through that small torchlight, we need to do whatever we can do to start. And that might simply be to tell somebody, I don't see what the point is. I can't be fagged anymore. And that small sentence might be enough to give somebody we trust permission to ask us a bit more to tell them a bit more. Maybe they even say, let's go for a walk or let's go and get a cup of tea. All of this can wait. So it's kind of start wherever you can start. And for those of us helping others in burnout situations, I think it's really about being very patient, having the courage to wait, to keep showing up, to keep saying, are you okay? No, how are you really? I know when I've worked with people with really debilitating psychological problems like bipolar disorder that's flaring or things that can be really a big impost on people. And they tell stories about things like my sister rang every single day for two years. Every single day she asked me, would I like to come out for a cup of tea? And every day I said no, until one day I said yes. It is kind of that hang in there with people. It's no good taking a horse to water if the horse won't drink. (laughs) It's important to be with each other to be patient to help each other build courage it's not easy to be vulnerable so i think you know let's be really frank and honest to be in burnout or to be completely overwhelmed so that you can't go to work is a horrible position to be in nobody wants to be in that position anybody in that position wants to get out of there ideally so meet them where they are If you're that person in that situation, I think name what you've got is the beginning to say, I'm really in trouble. Mm. What I can do is get up today and get dressed and sit in the sun and give myself a rest and be compassionate about that. It's actually all I can do. I'm really proud of myself that I did that. The simple things. I think it's great 
to hear because there might be people listening who have a friend or a family member or a colleague or someone they care about who is in burnout and how they can be of support. And I think just showing up and showing people that you're there, even if they don't take up the offer of support is absolutely critical and really, really gold. And hopefully that will really help that person. And I guess I'm just curious to know in your experience, when people are in sort of more extreme levels of burnout or more full-blown burnout, is it possible to come back from that? I guess I just want to give that message of hope to people out there that from what I've read, that, that is possible. And I'm just curious to know your experience with that. I think it is possible. It's like so many other things. The further along the track you are, the harder the work is and the longer the work will take. Definitely, for my mind anyway, it's better to get in early. <laughs> but yes, I think it's certainly possible. And the, the reality is when people are recovering from burnout and doing the work, from finding themselves in that place, they may not want to come back to where they, how they got into these positions. It's a, a bit like people who are made redundant sometimes. First of all, a lot of grief and trauma and distress and work around identity and place in the world and values and so on. And then there's work around, well, okay, now I'm in this place and I've learned all the things I've learned about this experience. What is it that I really want to do? Who do I really want to be? It's not necessarily so that we're doing that work so that we can go back to where we were. A bit like post-pandemic, none of us can actually ever go back to pre-pandemic. We know different things now. And so that idea of new normal, I guess. One of the things I didn't say about stress before was that when we are completely feeling like we have no efficacy, there's nothing we can do, that's the place of hopelessness and helplessness. Often where people give up, it's also where people feel suicidal and lots of tragic things can happen. Being able to find even the tiniest thing that you feel in control of is incredibly powerful. Like being able to say, okay, well, I can't actually change anything here in this workplace. I've got to the point where I accept. I've tried really hard, made lots of suggestions, nothing's happened. What I can control is my ability to take a breath right now and to ground myself in this moment and to be really present to the patient when I'm with the patient. And I'm not going to expect anything else of myself or the organization. And as I kind of regroup and reground myself, all I'm going to do is practice feeling my feet on the floor, taking some long exhalations every day at work. I'm going to regroup, feel my own self again. Maybe the next step will be that I'm going to tell somebody, I'm going to tell my partner, I'm going to tell my sister or somebody like that what's happening. And then I'm going to make an actual set of decisions about what I do next. I don't know what they are yet because I just don't have the capacity for that. But I can make a commitment to myself that I will find a way to look after myself and to make some new decisions. And sometimes even just that commitment to self can be enough for a person to feel like they've regained some sense of control or some sense of self in the mess, if you like. And that's enough to feel like a turnaround. There's obviously a lot of work to do after that. But that first moment, that first sense of, okay, I can control this bit. I can control that I am going to do whatever I need to do to get back into a sense of control about my own life. Yeah, that's... It can be very grounding. Yeah, no, I love that. That's so important and so good to hear that because people can feel like they don't have that a sense of impact or a sense of control over their lives when they're at work and to know that there are things that you can do to start bringing back that sense of control and autonomy and to know that people do have choices and they they don't have to stay stuck even though it might really feel like that's the only way of being so that's great to hear 
Well, that's great, Cherie. Thank you so much for your time today. I guess just before we finish up, is there any other key messages or anything else that you think would really be important for our listeners to hear before we wrap up? I really want to just reiterate, you mentioned about our program Respond at the beginning, Celeste. Respond is a on-demand online program. It's all from me. I'm in all the videos. If people feel like the way I talk or they've looked at my book and they think that these things are useful for them, it's a very cost-effective, available thing. I think I can't remember actually the price, but it's less than $200. It's online. It goes for 12 months. If people feel like they'd like to take a deeper dive into some of these things and really learn some of these skills and have a place to reflect on them, it's a terrific resource for people. And I hope one day that people might even use it in their teams and talk about it together. I think it would initially we did promote it as something that that organisations could purchase and share with their whole teams. It's built so that people could, for instance, 10 people could be doing module one together and talking about it at work. And for me, that's the kind of the future dream, I guess, that these kinds of conversations are just part of the ordinary conversation that we have in healthcare, that we've shifted the culture so much that we just naturally and all the time are talking to each other, to the patients about how we can look after our emotions, how we can manage our minds, how we can help each other, and that that's our kind of new normal. So that's there for people to look at if they want to. And if people want to hear or see more of what I'm talking about, I'm on LinkedIn and Instagram, and there's a lot of stuff on our website coachingfordoctors.com.net.au which is we're just trying to resource people really all of that stuff there's for free so please take advantage of those things and thank you all very very much for the work that you're doing I think it's extraordinary work that you're doing under very very difficult circumstances no thanks for Sheree that sounds like a great program and I think it's really great that we've had this conversation so we can start opening up that conversation of burnout and hopefully bringing that more into the workplace for people to talk about how they're feeling and if that's something they're experiencing and of course we're always here at nurse and midwife support we have a great team here who can help you if you are struggling with any kind of health problem so please feel free to contact us at any time you can phone us or you can go onto our website as well so thanks so much Sheree great to talk to you and really appreciate your time Thanks so much for having me, Celeste, and for the work that you're doing as well. Thanks, Cherie.